So Greg, was there writing on the wall? Absolutely. There has been writing on the wall for some time. It's been ignored or dismissed. And now we're seeing the results. Let's do it on The Public Diplomat. All right, so Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine and everybody in the West is like, oh my God, how did this ever happen? You say the writing was on the wall. Talk to, talk to me about it. Well, I mean, the writing on the wall has been there since the very end of the Cold War and it's been gradually building up. Uh, Russia and Russians tend to have a long memory and tend to remember things. And if we remember back to the reunification of Germany, there was the promise not to move NATO one inch eastward. And this was uh, confirmed by Jack Matlock, the US ambassador to the Soviet Union. You've had different periodic things. 1997, the open letter by a number of high-ranking US policy officials if we continue to expand NATO eastward, we will have problems with Russia in the future. And then we can go forward from that and we see the color revolutions of 2005, 4-5 uh, in uh, Ukraine. We see these different events, then 2014. And, and this has been building and building. And of course, 2014 is the watershed when it comes to Ukraine, because this is when you had uh, Russia annex Crimea and get more deeply involved. So it was coming, but yeah, not everyone was ready. Right. So Greg Simons from Uppsala University in Sweden. Uh, I've been reading your research on Russia's uh, public diplomacy, Russia's communication strategy for over a decade now. And I want to bring you in to talk to our audiences uh, about your research and what it can inform us about uh, Putin and what is in his mind, right? Getting into the mind of Putin. So um, let's talk about Russia's communication strategy post-Cold War. Take us through immediately after the Cold War. No, just for the next, for the next uh, two decades. No, but yeah. If we're to be generous, yes. it, it was chaotic uh, and more or less non-existent because you had a, a, the remnants of a, of a super state, uh, which was something else, and it didn't know its place. Uh, it was very dependent on the West at that stage, especially the US. It was trying to be more like this Western uh, world. Uh, and yeah, they were not in a position to assert themselves. They didn't have the economic uh, circumstances. They were in a great state of disarray. So that was at that stage. And I mean, you, you've had a, a gradual disillusion setting in. Uh, which has taken time, but we see the results of this disillusionment. All right, so Vladimir Putin takes power, and along the years, he brings Russian confidence back, and he starts investing money not only in uh, his military and to upgrade it, but also in his communication infrastructure. So let's talk about uh, the communication infrastructure that was established during the Putin years, right? 
from Russia today, RT, that everybody's more aware of, mm -hmm. along with other communication strategies. I think it's important to realize that when Vladimir Putin came to power in 2000, uh, he was not he was not against the West. He was actually a Westernizer, and so was very much trying to align with the West. Because if we remember back those days when George Bush was seeing wonderful things in Putin's eyes, I mean, at this stage, Russia was joining the WTO, World Trade Organization. Russia was uh, joining what became G8, which is now back to G7. So the efforts. Uh, at that stage of the communication were joining the West. It was not uh, divorcing from the West because you, you had these different relationships there. I mean, it was following Yeltsin's path. I mean, this was in spite of the Kosovo war because that uh, created some frictions, but it did not end this aligning with the West. I mean, what we see now is the result of the gradual realization that Russia was, from the Russian perspective, not being taken as a partner and not being taken as an equal, but uh, as a more of an object than a subject. And so therefore you had this pushback. All right, that's all good, but go back to my question, communication strategy, mm -hmm. communication infrastructure. So the communication strategy, uh, I mean, if we look at it was the main concern, and this was expressed early on in the, um, the this kind of information security approach which they took, and they Russia realized that the world was talking about Russia in different ways, but Russia was not able to get its message across to the world. So therefore, I mean, you, you had this uh, security information security doctrine. Uh, which came out in 2001, but it was, of course, discussed before this. And so the basic premises of the, and the beginning of the current strategy, uh, which we see uh, today, was that Russia needs to be able to project its image and messages, its strategic communications to the outside world. So therefore, they needed to create a kind of BBC, Deutsche Welle, France 24 kind of uh, enterprise. And of course, the first language of choice was English. And uh, if we look at it since then, uh, those Russian uh, public diplomacy assets in terms of media communication, uh, I mean, they've diversified into different languages, depending on the different geopolitical and regional priorities of the Russian state in terms of its diplomacy. So I mean, it's branched into Arabic, Spanish, and so forth. And its basic message to the world is that Russia has something to offer, that Russia is back in the world after its uh, rather spectacular collapse and implosion. So therefore, um, it was trying to reestablish itself, and, and it prioritized different regions. Some regions were ignored more. Uh, but the beginnings of it to... But, but Greg, let, let's talk about that because I think in a way, Russia's communication strategy almost informs its geopolitical strategy, right? So for those who were so surprised by Russia's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, move away from the West and towards, you know, other places, mm -hmm. was the writing on the wall. So let's talk about 
you know, you said initially it was mostly in English, targeted at the West, at Europe, at the United States, but now we have Russia today in, you know, Arabic, in different, you know, parts of the world, uh, pivoting, you know, towards Asia in their, in their own sense and towards Africa and towards the Middle East. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is one indicator of those changing geopolitical priorities. And for example, when, I mean, the, the world seemed surprised when, you know, Russia was back in the Middle East, but I mean, this should not have been a surprise. I mean, the fact that R Russian public diplomacy uh, media assets such as RT and others started publishing and broadcasting in Arabic, this should have been like a big like indicator. Hello, I mean, this is a priority and it was a fairly early priority. If I remember rightly, that was back in 2005 that they started doing. So, I mean, this is only four years, uh, five years after Putin came to power as president. So, I mean, it's sending a clear signal uh, that it is moving elsewhere. And I mean, if we look at that in conjunction with how these foreign policy concepts of the Russian Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, how they're worded, I mean, if you bring these two things together, I mean, the path is very clear that it was moving away from this Western-centric world where it felt, it felt as though it was an object of the game uh, to moving towards this non-Western-centric world where it felt it, it was being a subject in things and one of the leading parts of it. So let, let's talk about their communication um, strategy mm -hmm. and their position specifically, right? You know, communication sense. So if they're moving away from Europe and saying, hey, Europe, we share your values. We, we're, you know, we're committed to democracy. We want to be one of you. And now there is a new message. It's a message of leadership and strength. Can you talk about the notion of power, strength, and leadership in the world in the Russian psyche, if there is such a thing? Well, I mean, it's clear in the messaging what's going on. I mean, just look at the slogans, for example, used by uh, RT, uh, question more. So, I mean, this is indicating what the position is. That what are they questioning more? They're questioning the Western narrative, uh, and mainly, especially this US-driven uh, narrative of the world. And I mean, one, one can see that this that they position themselves as a challenger uh, to uh, what the US is doing in the world. And they position what the US-led world is doing as being destructive and disruptive uh, to international relations, as well as regional uh, security and so forth. Uh, and I mean, there's been a definite development because it's gone from countering uh, these um, projected uh, disruptions and subversions and so forth. And if we look at what's happening now, it's it's moved beyond that because it's going to a, a more of an idea that they're leading something. So this is not something countering something, but building something more. And I mean, if we look, I mean, you, you see Lavrov currently where he is in the Middle East and Africa, I mean, uh, this is quite indicative of that. And I mean, if looking elsewhere, I mean, this is this expansion of BRICS, for example, this, uh, this kind of 
competing form to European Union or this idea of these Western-led trade blocks, uh, and, and this is expanding and expanding. So, I mean, th these are clear indicators where this is going. This is the strategy and this is the placement where they put Russia in these changes, this idea. And because if we look at the the whole strategic picture, how it's characterized, I mean, this is on based on the perception that you've got a declining uh, Western-centric US unipolar world order and moving towards this non-Western-centric multipolar order. Absolutely. I mean, which was kind of the, you know, it's where it all started. I mean, you know, uh, before the end of the Cold War, there were alternatives. It wasn't just the US and the West. And then after the Cold War, Europe, the United States, they provide the leadership, globalization, opening of markets, and everything is feeding into the Western perspective. Now the West is seen as on the decline after Afghanistan and Iraq and the lack of willingness from all US administrations and European administrations to get involved in the world. And Russia's message is very clear. If you're not gonna be involved, we're gonna provide the leadership. And we saw that in Syria, and we're seeing that in many parts of the world these days. So the communication strategy, the writing was on the wall all along. Greg, what you're, you were talking about uh, Deutsche Welle and uh, you know Voice of America and the BBC. Many have argued that you know today's in today's world, and when you think about power, everybody's always thinking about hard power and soft power, but communication power, right? The ability to um, frame the world you know, build the, the media agenda and influence global public opinion is a part of a nation's overall power, right? So, I mean, how does Russia stand, stack up against the Al Jazeera's, against the European government-sponsored uh, channels, the Chinese, the Iranians, and the Americans? How do you think in terms of budgets and in terms of overall market penetrations in different parts of the world? Where would you rate the Russian effort? Well, I mean, like all of those other ones, I mean, the, these international media uh, that is associated with public diplomacy, I mean, it's not their intention to interpret the world. I mean, it's the intention to represent geopolitics rather than interpret it so i mean like this everyone has something in common in terms of the baseline from which which they're working and if we look at those western centric worlds of course this doesn't fly because the information environment is deeply hostile to russia and to russian interests uh, in terms of the mainstream media but then if you start digging down beyond mainstream media, this is when you actually see that there are little individuals and groups which more subscribe uh, to the messages from uh, the, these channels like RT, Sputnik, and so forth. Uh, because and Actually, Greg, can, can I put my finger on this? And this is a really interesting topic. You look at public opinion poll from Europe, and you're seeing that in the European right, I mean, this is in Italy and, and even in where you are in Swedish Democrats, right? We see that the Russian narrative in a way is, is gathering traction amongst uh, some of the more right-wing uh, political parties in Europe. How is that? Why is that? 
Well, I mean, it's like the US and other places because, I mean, I, I for want of a better term, but I think it, it's quite appropriate. I mean, these conservative groups, socially and culturally conservative groups in the Western world, uh, feel as though that there is a culture war uh, with the liberals. And so they seek to align or communicate with more culturally and socially conservative uh, forces. I mean, Israel is another uh, in terms of this, where people from the right, which traditionally have not always been uh, very favorable, but now with this idea of culture war, they feel much greater affinity to those who stand up for traditional family values, these kinds of uh, central values to conservative beliefs. And I mean, you, you can definitely see that uh, with these uh, some elements of neoconservatives in the States with Dreyer and the, these kinds of figures, I mean, who are uh, referring to Russia uh, as being well, before this, bearing in mind that this was before the current war, uh, we're, we're referring to Russia as an upholder of uh, Western values rather than one that is dragging down or uh, dismembering Western values. They see the liberals as being the enemy of their system of values and lifestyle. I want, I want to give an alternative explanation. I disagree yeah. with you. Um, I'm going to argue that it, you're partially right in my view. I think that uh, a lot of people on the right, you are correct, they have a suspicion and their suspicion is towards big government, right? And centralized government. And what I think in Europe, this is my interpretation, I would love your, to get your feedback on this, the concern is over Brussels and the fact that the, the people in Brussels who are not really elected by the people of Italy and Sweden, right, and, and Spain and, and France, these are a bunch of bureaucrats that are disconnected from the world and from everyday lives of European people and European nations. And the, more, and the values that they're promoting in Brussels are not consistent with the values of the everyday European, right? So the, the attempt by uh, Putin to undermine the uh, bureaucracy in Brussels is what is so appealing to many people on the right. What do you think about that? Well, if you're talking about Europe, yeah, I mean, yep. this, this is partly uh, to do with it because now, I mean, you've, you've got this uh, alternative uh, brand of the European Union as the EU SSR. So you've, you've got this kind of attempt to manage its reputation as being something linked to the Soviet Union. That is this uh, rather obscene bureaucratic body, which is devoid of this kind of human feeling. And yeah, I mean, they are very uh, separated from the reality of life or um, average citizens. Uh, and I mean, this gets demonstrated regularly. And of course, it alienates people from the system. And of course, this takes away this sense of belonging and purpose. So then there is an attempt, what do you do if you lack a, a, a sense of purpose and belonging? You go to look for it elsewhere. And I mean, we're not only talking about Russia, one can also mention ISIS, for example, which was offering 
recruits uh, this sense of identity and purpose and belonging in life, uh, which many bought, even though they had all the basic physical needs met, they did not have the psychological needs met. Well, this is interesting stuff. I love it. And uh, in a way, the Russian involvement in European politics, uh, is there an attempt at communication, attempt a strategic communication campaign to undermine the European Union and to help, uh, you know, Marianne Le Pen in France, or, you know, the right wing in upcoming Italian elections, or the, the Dutch right? Um, I mean, we see that Russia is involved in terms of not only financial support, but also messaging uh, and trying to build up those political parties. Is Russia trying to undermine the EU through communications? Well, the best ones to undermine the EU are the EU themselves. Uh, they, ha they have little competition uh, in this regard. I mean, what they have done in this regard, and this also refers to uh, these, these country bodies as well, because, you know, this fight against populism and so forth, which Le Pen and all of these other different, uh, more right-wing conservative uh, movements, which are growing. Well, one of the things they do is they try to shut them off from any funding, which all political parties need or movements need uh, in order to grow to sustain themselves. Uh, and I mean, this leaves an opening. If you, if you cut it out from access to funds from within the EU, that leaves external players to uh, fill the gap because you create a vacuum, but uh, it's the law of physics, a vacuum will not remain a vacuum forever. So you, you create an unknown vulnerability by doing so. Um, so so it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. So you're saying wherever there's a vacuum, right, left by the West, the Russians are going to step in, whether it's in um, Syria, right, as an example, or in uh, European politics. Even. No, absolutely. It makes perfect sense too. I mean, if you're, if you're creating these uh, vulnerabilities at the same time, uh, you're building conflict w with Russia. Uh, I mean, it's going to be common sense for Russia uh, to exploit those vulnerabilities. So without um, bringing a moral uh, evaluation in here, is Vladimir Putin a brilliant geostrategist or is he a madman? He's not a madman. Uh, I mean, this is clear. I mean, a madman doesn't make uh, the decisions that he has done. Uh, otherwise, R Russia would have been finished uh, a some time ago. Uh, and the fact that he, he's been 22 years, well, 20 years in power, uh, I mean, at the top, uh, that is more than a madman. It's someone who knows uh, how to play these political and geopolitical games. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he set the course. I mean, he has been setting forth the idea to resurrect Russia uh, as an international power. And in this respect, I mean, he's been able to systematically do so, not only in terms of his own uh, strengths and opportunities, but also from these weaknesses uh, which have been exposed by the West uh, and it's, I mean, at times seemingly suicidal or should we say at least ill-advised uh, policy paths that it's been taking. 
And he's got the support of the Russian people for now. So the Russian people are behind him, according to public opinion polls, supporting the war in Ukraine, despite the yeah. fact that in the West we represent it as highly unpopular, right? I mean, a lot of Western media were talking about a possible coup, the fall yeah. of Vladimir Putin, and that is not happening right now. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, great topic. We're going to find out what happens with Vladimir Putin and with Russia. Will Russian be uh, embraced back into the arms of the Western community, or is it going to reemerge as a geopolitical rival for many years to come? Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming in. And for everybody, thank you for listening and watching The Public Diplomat. We look forward to hearing from you. Have a great day.